Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. In this series of programs, I'd like to take up the thinker Soren Kierkegaard, give a little bit of his history, and then deal specifically with uh, sickness unto death. I'm going to show or draw out the parallels between the sickness unto death and a deep psychology that I think there is there are parallels between the sickness unto death and Lacanian or Zizakian theories of psychoanalysis and this is not accidental because Lacan himself, Zizak himself, they're they're reading Kierkegaard and at least to a degree consciously assimilating what he's doing. Lacan will sum up his own theory as saying, well, and all that I've just said is has to do with what Soren Kierkegaard calls sin. So let me give a, a brief rundown that uh, Kierkegaard is born in May 1813 in Copenhagen. And his father, Michael Peterson Kierkegaard, is going to play a key role He becomes a wealthy merchant, marries the housemaid, who Anne Kierkegaard, we really know nothing about or very little about. Soren never mentions her. Peter Christian never mentions her, uh, or the mentions of her are extremely rare. And so the, the mother, is it's a sort of embarrassing situation is the way that it's often thought that, that Michael's first wife had died and apparently the maid is found pregnant and uh, he marries her. Kierkegaard's brother, Peter Christian, takes a degree in theology, manages to do it in four years, and of course it'll take uh, Soren some ten years uh, to complete his degree. And the relationship to the brother is always a troubled relationship. And the brother then comes to represent uh, the clergy for him. And in the, one of the last scenes of his life is his brother trying to come and bring communion and Kierkegaard refusing it. And of course, the other important personage in Kierkegaard's life is Regina, who he is engaged to be married and uh, turns refuses the marriage and that this will be one of the most troubled period and hardest things that he does. As a theologian of the church, Peter, his his brother, had criticized Soren's works on several occasions, even at ecclesiastical conventions in 1849, 1855. But his brother will deliver the eulogy at the Church of Our Lady. The, Kierkegaard probably would not have approved of, and followers of Kierkegaard were very young disciples of him, were very unhappy that he had this church funeral because, in fact, he had refused association with the church and the clergy in one of the last things he does. Uh, He had met Regina in 1837. She was only 14 years old, and he began to pursue her over a long period of time uh, ingratiating himself first as a friend and then attempting to court her and was successful, offers a proposal of marriage. But as soon as he does it, he begins to doubt himself, his ability to care for someone in the role of a husband, and then breaks the engagement. And this shatters her that uh, she's really unwilling to accept 
the breaking of the engagement. Despite deep despair and repeated pleas, uh, Kierkegaard met with her and again breaks it off, confirms it in, in person. He would later beg Regina for forgiveness for his actions. And in a famous letter he writes, Above all, forget the one who writes this. Forgive someone who, whatever else, could not make a girl happy. Maybe Kierkegaard never really recovered from his failed relationship with Regina. He seems to have regretted his decision at some points. There's been scholarly contention as to why he did this. It's been suggested that maybe his reading of the biblical story of Abraham and Isaac influenced his perspective. He believed that if he were to sacrifice this one, you know, most dear as Abraham is sacrificing Isaac, that it would be a kind of act of ultimate religious faith and God would in some way return her to him at the last moment. Kierkegaard instead was confounded when in fact she just moved on and married someone else. The other thing, the other event that is pertinent to this is his father's cursing of God uh, as a young boy. He had, was a boy of about age 11. He was out herding sheep. He was lonely. He was cold. In the midst of this feeling destitute, he curses God. He, in fact, does become very wealthy. But ironically, he believes this is really God's vengeance because shortly after the death of his first wife in pregnancy, then he just, you know, he conceives the child with the, the maidservant. And he's overwhelmed with guilt uh, and marries the girl. Who, and she became the mother then of his seven children. And so the father has a very dark perspective, seems to live in continual guilt. And this affects uh, Kierkegaard, Soren, most of all. That Michael had con was convinced that he had earned God's wrath and he believed that none of his children would live past the age attained by Christ, that of 33. And indeed, his wives and all his children, except Michael and Soren, die within a short span of time. But both Soren and Peter will live past the age of 33. In his early adulthood, Soren entered the royal guards for military service, but was discharged after only three days as being medically unfit for service. And then at the age of 17, he enters Copenhagen University. Seems to be very popular, very intelligent, takes to the social life of the university. And maybe that's why it took him 10 years to get a theology degree. In university, he clearly learns to use his wits and irony uh, to defend himself, which leaves many uncomfortable because he could be quite cruel at at times. He opens the book with, I would call attention at once for all to the fact that in this whole book, as the title in, indeed says, despair is conceived as the sickness, not as the cure. This is an interesting idea here, that in fact, in and this might be the large difference between Lacanian psychoanalysis is that the despair in Lacanian psychoanalysis in the end and maybe in Freudian psychoanalysis there is a, a deep engagement with the human disease and of course in 
Freud's analysis terminable and interminable, he begins to question the efficacy of analysis, or is there really a cure? Kierkegaard is making the distinction that recognizing the despair may not be the cure itself. He says, so also in the Christian terminology, death is the expression for the greatest spiritual wretchedness. And yet the cure is simply to die, to die from. And this, this is key. He's going to use the term death that we'll see the same usage in both Lacan and Zizek, that they're going to take up the idea of dying with Christ. But of course what they mean by it is death per se is in some way the answer. And this, this is precisely what Kierkegaard does not mean. He says this, this sickness is not unto death, is what Jesus says about Lazarus. For when the disciples misunderstood the words which Christ adjoined later, Lazarus, our friend, is asleep, but I go to wake him out of his sleep. He said plainly, Lazarus is not dead. And what Kierkegaard is doing in this passage is distinguishing between death per se and the sickness unto death. Lazarus is dead, and yet this sickness was not unto death. He was dead, and yet this sickness is not unto death. We know that Christ was thinking of the miracle, obviously, that he would raise him, if they believe, you know, to the bystanders would see the glory of God. The miracle, though, by which he awoke Lazarus from the dead, making this sickness that it was not only not unto death, but it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. So what he's describing is the despair or the sickness unto death is not directly conjoined to death itself. It's something other than that. It's not actually die. And in fact, we'll get, as we get to the end of the sickness unto death, he's going to specifically say it is an incapacity to die. This is very interesting because this is, this is what Lacan and Zizek both arrive at, that we often think of the death drive as in some way connected to simply mortality or death per se. But they're both going to, to, to claim, no, it's not finitude or mortality, but it's in, in fact the incapacity to die. That in the sickness unto death, in Kierkegaard's phrase, or in the death drive per se, one cannot attain to death. You know, death would be the end of the situation, that there is a miserableness in despair, that one would end by any means, death itself would be a relief, and that's precisely what's not available. Kierkegaard says, even if Christ had not awakened Lazarus from the dead, is it not true that this sickness, that death itself, was not a sickness unto death? When Christ comes to the grave and cries with a loud voice, Lazarus comes forth, it is evident that this sickness is not unto death. So whatever's wrong with Lazarus, this isn't the human disease per se. Even if Christ had not said these words, that merely the fact that he is, Kierkegaard says, the resurrection and life, quoting from John eleven twenty five, the resurrection and life comes to the grave is not this a sufficient sign that this sickness is not unto death? Does not the fact that Christ exists mean that this sickness is not unto death? So the Christian understanding of, of it is not even that death is the sickness, but 
and maybe everything connected to death, you know, what is earthly, temporal, suffering, want, sickness, wretchedness, affliction, you know, he goes through this list, sorrow, grief. He says, even if such things are so painful and hard to bear that we, when we men say, or at all events the sufferers say, this is worse than death. Everything of the sort, which if it is not a sickness, is comparable to a sickness, is nevertheless, in the Christian understanding of it, not the sickness unto death. That is, what is this thing? He's saying it's not these things. It's not simply mortality and the suffering that comes with mortality. So in turn, Christianity has discovered an evil which man as such does not know of. And he's going to use this idea of sickness unto death being a deception throughout, which again is an interesting parallel with Lacan's whole structure, that the structure of the subject is in fact in the form of a lie, that there is the, the object of the lie, which is the ego, that is, this is the illusory thing that one is continually in pursuit of. There's the medium of the lie, that is, the symbolic world or language or authority that in some way would grasp the object. And then there's what is denied in the lie, which is, of course, for Lacan, death drive. And so what Kierkegaard seems to be saying is very similar to what Lacan is saying here. This thing is going to be recognized for what it is only through revelation, only through this is what Christ has come to do, is to reveal the sickness unto death. Only the Christian, Kierkegaard says, knows what is meant by the sickness unto death. He acquires as a Christian a courage which the natural man does not know. This courage he acquires by learning fear for the still more dreadful. Such is the man, the way a man always acquires courage. When one fears a greater danger, it is as though the other did not exist. But the dreadful thing the Christian learned to know is the sickness unto death. And of course, this accords with Hebrews chapter 2. It accords with uh, Romans 8, that the thing that has gripped human beings is the fear of death, the this is the way that Satan is depicted as controlling human beings, that they're enslaved to this fear. A fear maybe, and Kierkegaard seems to be saying this here in this passage, that is so great that the truly fearful one will not in some way admit what it is that he's afraid of. He says, despair is a sickness in the spirit, in the self, and so it may assume a triple form. He's going to run down three ways in which one might be in despair. In despair at not being conscious of having a, a self, and he says despair improperly so-called. In despair at not willing to be oneself, you want to be someone else, or in despair at willing to be oneself. And of course, in each instance, the, the problem is that one is not completely aware of what that self is or, or of even of having a self. And this then explains his <laughs> kind of impenetrable opening in which he talks about human beings, that what a human is, man is spirit, but what is spirit? Spirit is the self. What is the self? The self is a relation which relates itself to its own self. 
what he's doing here that he's going to talk about the self-relation as continually folding back on itself but he says the self is not the relation but consists in the fact that the relation relates itself to its own self so he sums it up man is a synthesis of the infinite and the finite of the temporal and the eternal of freedom and necessity uh, a synthesis is a relation between two factors so regarded man is not yet a self. And so he's positing that there's two possibilities for human beings. There's this continual folding in on the self, in which it's purely a self-relation, but what is not recognized is the third term. In the relation between two, the relation is the third term, as a negative unity. And the two relate themselves to the relation. Maybe here, strangely enough, Lacan may be clearer than Kierkegaard, but what is being talked about, if we translate this into the Lacanian notion of the unity, the negative unity of the Lacanian real, the real is just a reference to the death drive, a conflict between the law, the symbolic, and the I, constitutes the third term, the body of death, if we think in Paul's language. That is, that there's a conflict between the ego and the mind, you know, the two things in Paul's picture. But there is a third element that's constituted in, in this that we may be unconscious of, the thing that's denied, but that is produced then by this agonistic self-relation that Paul will call the body of death or the body of sin. The body of death is an orientation of the I to itself within itself. This is the, you know, if Kierkegaard here is sort of impenetrable, we'll just look at Romans 7. I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. That is that the two things, the two parts of the self, are relating in the relation between soul and body. This is Kierkegaard's language between mind and body or however you want to say it when man is regarded as a soul in some way we've hit Kierkegaard says upon eternality within the self that is that God or death can stand in place of this third term and whether God is not introduced as part of the relation the relation of the self to the self it just it, the in, infinite aspect of the self is in death that death itself takes up the role of God is what he's describing, and it's precisely, again, what Lacan is describing. If this relation, which relates itself to its own self, is constituted by another, the relation is doubtless the third term. This relation is, in turn, a relation relating itself to that which constituted the whole relation. I think this is a picture of God. But you can picture this. Uh, he says the relation can be constituted in a negative unity. And this is precisely what, uh, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, Freudian psychoanalysis, that the three things, you know, uh, Kierkegaard is describing three things coming together, two, you know, the two parts of the self relating to the self and the third term, and the third term can be death. Lacan talks about the body, the real, and Paul talks about the body of sin or the body of death. And that is constituted then by the self's relation to itself or the pursuit of the mind after the eye, the law of the mind, law of the sin and death. In some way, 
The self is pitted against the self, and that third term constitutes the whole relation. It may be that Paul is describing something that he's not conscious of in his pre-Christian life and only becomes conscious of as a Christian. That's the way that Romans 7 is often read. Zizek will say the same thing, that we all have to pass through a Pauline Christianity to arrive at a correct understanding of the death drive. Of course, Zizek is an atheist, but he's saying just what Paul has done there is one that we come to. He's saying that Lacanian psychoanalysis, that I suppose Freudian psychoanalysis is a byproduct then of a, a Christian understanding. I think that's probably right, that what is taking place in Freudian psychology, at least in as much as it's hitting upon masochism as the controlling factor, sadism, the controlling factor in human life. There is a kind of inherent self-destruction at work in people. There is a violence at work in people that is recognized fully only in the New Testament. So Lacan, of course, is raised Catholic and he sees his own work in psychoanalysis as a kind of extension of, even though he's not, he repudiates his Catholicism to some degree. Zizek is in no way a Orthodox Christian. He would say he's an, a Pauline materialist. He wants to, in some way, claim to be a kind of Christian, but a Christian then, the, this is the point where he would say he's a Christian, that what is recognized in Lacanian psychoanalysis in, in Freud is just a following of Paul. Both Lacan and Zizek say the same thing. Kierkegaard says such a derived, constituted relation is the human self. That is, the self is either in this agonistic struggle in relating itself to its own self, how then it relates or does not relate to another. He says there can be two forms of despair, properly so-called. If the human self had constituted itself, he says there could be a question only of one form, that of not willing to be oneself, of willing to get rid of oneself. But there would be no question of despairingly willing to be oneself. He's saying we're constituted by another. That then creates three forms. Unless, of course, the self posits an other through which it is constituted, and this other here, in a misunderstanding, in Paul, this other might be the law. It may, doesn't have to be God. It might be death. Think here of Hegel, that Hegel in some way lets death and nothingness serve very consciously in the place of God as the absolute. This, then, is the formula which describes the condition of the self. When despair is completely eradicated, by relating itself to its own self and by willing to be itself, the self is grounded transparently in the power which posited it. Here's the cure, here's the healing that we acknowledge, you know, as Paul says in Corinthians, that I am not my own, but I have been bought with a price. That there is the relief to the tension, to the despair. The formula that the self is constituted by another is the expression for the total dependence of the relation. The expression of the fact that the self cannot of itself attain and remain in equilibrium and rest by itself, but only by relating itself to that power which constituted the whole relation. So Kierkegaard is giving us a deep psychology here of, I think, the difference 
that should take place, and I think often doesn't take place, in understanding what it means to introduce God or Christ into a, a deep psychology, that this actually takes an effect. So far is it from being true that this second form of despair, despair at willing to be oneself, denotes only a particular kind of despair that on the contrary all despair can in the last analysis be reduced to this. He's saying that all despair reduces to this idea of not willing to be the self. That it's always a, he calls it a disrelationship of despair. A disrelationship in a relation which relates itself to its own self. That is the idea that it's constituted by another and the disrelationship in that self-relation reflects itself infinitely in the relation to the power which constituted death, death drive, the real, the body of sin, can take on the look of the infinite in that God, it is God that is displaced in this negative self-relation. This is my understanding of even the way that idolatry works, that Idolatry is a displacement of God and takes on a kind of eternality, not in any positive sense, but in an infinitely negative sense, an apophatic sense. That's the, the danger, I think, in some forms of apophaticism, is that it does precisely what Kierkegaard is warning against here, that the negative, the nothing, in a Hegelian sense or in a Freudian sense, you know, Freud, Freud will call the fusion of the death drive with the life instinct the nirvana principle. He's just saying that what is happening in Buddhism is precisely what he's describing in this human sickness. And doing what Kierkegaard is saying here, that the death drive or this negative self-relation will take on the look of the infant. Kierkegaard said, it is an infinite advantage to be able to despair, and yet it is not only the greatest misfortune and misery to be in despair, no, it is perdition. That is, the capacity for the infinite makes death and despair something on the order of a negative infinite force. And this, I think, is a critique here of Lacan and Zizek, in that they're positing this negative infinite force as reality, that is, that there is no getting beyond this negative reality. The thing of not being in despair, Kierkegaard said, must mean the annihilation of the possibility of being this. If it is to be, to be true that a man is not in despair, one must annihilate the possibility every instant. Such is not ordinarily the relation be between possibility and actuality. Although thinkers say that actuality is the annihilated possibility, yet this is not entirely true. It is the fulfilled, the effective possibility. Here, on the contrary, the actuality, that is, of not being in despair, which in its very form is a negation, is the impotent, annihilated possibility. Ordinarily, actuality in comparison with possibility is a confirmation. Here it is a negation. It's interesting that in Scripture, that actually the cure is a double negation. The death of death. The undoing is, it's an undoing of nothingness. I think that's what Kierkegaard is describing. Observe that 
we speak of a man contracting a disease, maybe through carelessness. Then the illness sets in, and from that instant, it affirms itself and is now an actuality, the origin of which recedes more and more into the past. It would be cruel and inhuman if one were to continue to say incessantly, this instant thou, the sick man, art contracting the disease. And of course what he's saying here is that's despair, that's the sickness unto death, that it's that nature of thing that you're continually contracting the disease. This isn't normally the way that we talk about disease. He's making that contrast. One cannot say about disease usually that he's continually contracting it. Not so with despair. Every actual instant of despair is to be referred back to possibility. Every instant the man in despair is contracting it. It is constantly in the present tense. Nothing comes to pass here as a consequence of a bygone actuality superseded. At every actual instant of despair, the despair bears as his responsibility all the foregoing experience in possibility as a present. He's sick and he's continually contracting the sickness. Again, it is the I here in a Lacanian or Zizekian understanding, uh, talking about the Apostle Paul, is not sick because it's divided, but rather its dividedness is its sickness. That The idea that it's constituted in sickness. It's con the division is the I. I is the sickness in the way that Paul is describing it. That is, the cure would not be to, in some way, bring reconciliation between the law of the mind and the law of the flesh. But what Paul does is says that I have been crucified. That is, he undoes the entire possibility. Kierkegaard is describing as this, this condition is the condition in which we're constituted, constituted as sick. The past, another way of saying this, is immediately brought to bear on the present through a continual act of the will. This is also, you know, how we relate to ourselves also has to do with the temporal factor here, that we're continually, in some way, the past is affecting the present. And what you have both in Lacanian psychoanalysis and in Paul, that actually the word that Lacan is going to use is from Heidegger, that in the blink of the eye, but where Heidegger gets it is from Kierkegaard, and that is the cure that you are, that they're aiming at in psychoanalysis, is to bring the future to bear on the present so that one has a different past. That is the cure, that you, in Pauline terms, that you have hope, and of course that's not a full-bodied hope in a Lacanian notion of psychoanalysis. So the concept of the sickness unto death must be understood in a peculiar sense. Literally, it means a sickness, the end and outcome of which is death. Thus, one speaks of a mortal sickness as synonymous with a sickness unto death. In this sense, despair cannot be called the sickness unto death, but in the Christian understanding of it, death itself is a transition unto life in view of this. There is, from the Christian standpoint, no earthly, bodily sickness unto death. The death drive is, a, is an incapacity to die. 
is the point that it's it is there is no transition there is an incapacity to deal with temporality in another and still more definitive sense despair is the sickness unto death it is indeed very far from being true that literally understood one dies of the sickness or that this sickness ends with bodily death on the contrary the torment of despair is precisely this not to be able to die it's a very interesting phrase that freud will use this language many times in talking about the death drive and where someone can actually pronounce themselves incapable of, of dying or he'll, he'll talk about various dreams in which there's an incapacity for death it has much in common with the situation of the moribund when he lies and struggles with death and cannot die so to be sick unto death is not to be able to die, yet not as though there were hope of life, think care of living death. No, the hopelessness in this case is that even in the last hope, death is not available. When death is the greatest danger, one hopes for life, but when one becomes acquainted with an even more dreadful danger, one hopes for death. So when the danger is so great that the death has become one's hope, despair is the disconsolateness of not being able to die. To die would be a, a relief, but it's precisely the incapacity to end the suffering, which would be seemingly held out in death. There, here is the bind. The death drive is the drive to be rid of the death drive. The whole aim is to rid yourself of this thing to in some way and, and of course this literally drives people to suicide the compulsion to repeat the the masochism that arises literally drives people to rid themselves of the drive kierkegaard again it is in this last sense that despair is the sickness unto death this agonizing contradiction this sickness in the self everlastingly to die to die and yet not to die, to die the death. For dying means that it is all over, but dying the death means to live, to experience death. And if for a single instance this experience is possible, it is tantamount to experiencing it forever. That is, this sickness unto death is a kind of experience of a negative eternity. We won't experience our actual death, our actual mortality, but what Kierkegaard is describing is we can have experiences of death in the way that we live. I think this is the biblical picture of shame, that shame is a kind of experience of, of death. It is on a continuum with, with death or dying. The despairing man cannot die, no more than the dagger can slay thoughts, can despair consume the eternal thing, the self, which is the ground of despair whose worm dieth not, here's hell on earth, and whose fire is not quenched. Yet despair is precisely self-consuming, but it is an impotent self-consumption which is not able to do what it wills. And this impotence is a new form of self-consumption, in which again, however, the despair is not able to do what he wills, namely to consume himself. He's continually consumed, but not able to finish the process. That is a process of dying, in which he's ever trying to put off this dying, but that is the process. The fact that the despair does not consume him is so far from being any comfort 
to the despairing man that it is precisely the opposite. This comfort is the torment. It is precisely this that keeps the gnawing pain alive and keeps life in the pain. This precisely is the reason why he despairs. Not to say despaired, because he cannot consume himself, cannot get rid of himself, cannot become nothing. This is the potentiated formula for despair, the rising of the fever in the sickness of the self. We'll take up and continue in part two of the sickness unto death. I think that here that we're dwelling in the, the deep psychology, that hopefully it relates both to the Pauline picture of the human sickness, and that it is illustrated, I think, in a shock. But we'll take up with part two. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have been moved by this podcast, please remember to share on social media. If you would like to know more about Forging Plowshares, would like to contact us with questions, want to ask about how you can get involved, or for more information about how you can support this ministry, please go to our website at forgingplowshares.org.